Hi there, it's Jillian, and I want to tell you about Jillian on Love Plus, your way to get even more Jillian on Love each week by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Patreon. You can access exclusive bonus episodes with extras, including answers to your most burning questions, advice on all things dating and relationships, and much more. Check out the link in the episode description for more information. Hey there, welcome to Jillian on Love. And I am on a mission to teach people how to completely revolutionize their romantic relationships by transforming the relationship they have with themselves. So whether you're in a relationship, single or heartbroken, I've got you covered. I'm Jillian Tarecki, certified relationship coach and teacher with over 20 years experience helping people transform their relationship with themselves through their bodies, breaths, and minds. I have coached and taught thousands of people to become better versions of themselves and change the way they show up for and within their love lives. In today's episode, I am so thrilled to welcome Doug Bobst. Doug is an award-winning personal trainer, author of three books, and the host of the Adversity Advantage podcast, which is a great podcast, by the way. And I was a guest on his a few months ago, and he's just a fantastic interviewer. He's on a crusade to inspire others to overcome adversity and become the best versions of themselves. He's a former convicted felon and drug addict who spent time in jail for possession with intent to sell. While locked in a cell, He slayed his personal demons, kicked addiction, and reinvented himself. As a matter of fact, he hasn't touched drugs since the day he was incarcerated in 2008. He has been featured on NBC's The Today Show, Men's Health, Forbes, Ritual, The Skinny Confidential, Impact Theory, and many other media outlets and podcasts. His story is so beyond inspiring. and. It's really something else. And you're going to learn what it is to be impacted by someone who you never thought you would be impacted by. He was impacted by someone in that cell that helped him change his life. And this story is so beautiful. It's just so incredibly beautiful. So we, we discuss his story. We discuss what it's like to overcome everything that he's overcome. And then we get into his love life, of course. And I even coach him a little bit, which was kind of fun. And he was super open to it, which I really, really appreciate it. And I think that you will get a lot out of this episode and you will certainly feel extremely inspired. Hi, Doug. Jillian, what's up? How are you? I am doing well. I'm super excited to be here and it's good to see you again. Oh, I feel the exact same way. I am so excited for this conversation. I'm going to just jump right in if I can. Let's go. Because your story is very unique and it is the reason why you are where you are today and why we're sitting here today. So why are you here? What You went to jail. <laughs> I, I went to jail and... What's interesting is like you came on my podcast, The Adversity Advantage, which is how we met. And as a kid, I used adversity to my complete disadvantage. And that ended up leading to me being incarcerated on felony drug charges back in 2008. And when I was incarcerated, I had a horrific addiction to Oxycontin to where I was snorting three, 400 milligrams every single day. I was selling drugs. I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. I had never been in any kind of uh, romantic relationship. I had broken relationships with my family. I had 21 jobs, completely broken in every facet of my life, suicidal thoughts. I was just so opposite, I guess, of where I am today. And I guess just before kind of talk about like my experience there to provide some context, like the adversity that I experienced as a kid, it's very common for what people experience now. But some of the stuff wasn't that common. Like, for instance, my parents got divorced when I was five. So I'm 35 now. And that was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, the divorce rates weren't what they are today, where it's like 50%. So I was 
started to look at myself at a very young age and say like, what's wrong with me? Why am I so different? Why are my friends, why are kids that I know spending time with both of their parents in the house? Why am I like bouncing around from house to house? Why are my parents not communicating with each other? Why are they going to court? Why is there talks of child support? Like all this stuff that I'm like- Are you an only child? I have three younger brothers, two full brothers, and then a half brother. So- Okay. So younger brothers. So how old were they? Like two? My one brother had just been born. He was born in 92, I believe. And then my other brother was maybe, he was born in 89. So I want to say he was like two or three. And then my half brother hadn't been born yet because my dad remarried fairly quickly. And then they had a kid together who's my half brother. Did you stay with your mom? We split time. So that's why I was saying it was kind of interesting to where we would bounce around from house to house, my brothers and I, where we would spend a few days with my mom, a few days with my dad, and then kind of go back and forth with that. And then also alternating the weekends. And then along that same time, like as I was a young kid, I loved sports. I loved playing sports, loved watching sports, loved collecting baseball cards and stuff like that. But I didn't make any of the sports teams and I was super unathletic, uncoordinated. And I would see my friends make these teams. And I was like, why is it that they're making these teams that I'm trying out for? They're the same type of person. They're a guy with Bob that's the same age as me and I'm not. So I started to reinforce this what's wrong with me mentality. And then also I started to gain weight at a young age. So like, and I think initially I started to self-soothe with food. To be honest, like I wasn't really eating much different than my friends. I mean, I was eating pizza, I was eating pasta, I was eating like cinnamon buns for breakfast. And that was like stuff that as kids we normally would eat, right? But I guess my genetics weren't very good and combine that with growing up in a stressful home to where I started to gain weight and I'm having to wear like husky pants when I'm, when I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old. I'm like looking down, I'm seeing some body fat and I'm like, why am I gaining weight? And my friends aren't like, why am I doing essentially like the same thing? Like I said, I'm playing sports, not making the teams. I'm eating the same way, gaining weight. And then on top of that, I was bullied a lot in grade school to where people made fun of me. They called me like Dumbo because my ears used to stick out a little bit. They used to say I looked like I had Down syndrome. And they would say all kinds of like horrible things to me that I eventually started to believe. Because as a guy, I feel like your identity when you're a kid is wrapped up in a few things. A, it's like who your friends are. Are you hanging out with the cool kids or not? That's e, for females too, by the way. Yeah. B, are you playing sports? Are you making the teams? And then mm -hmm. see, like, are girls interested in me? So I had all that going against me, like I talked about. And then I had the girls who weren't interested in me at all in middle school or high school. Like I was interested in them, but they weren't interested in me. So I started to say things like, maybe there is something wrong with me. Maybe these people are right. Like maybe they're, I'm just different. And that's why I don't have girls interested in me or I'm not making the sports teams or I'm not athletic, even though I wanted all these things. Like I wanted these things and I worked hard at it. And... My initial opportunity to really escape was when I was 14 and my neighbor offered me a hit off of a marijuana pipe. And when I first took a hit off that marijuana pipe, I felt this massive weight come off my back that I didn't have to worry about girls liking me. I didn't have to worry about my family situation. I didn't have to worry about what school was going to look like. I didn't have to worry about all the pain that I was enduring was all of a sudden just gone. From a one hit of weed? Yeah, because I just, for some reason, I was just looking for something mm -hmm. to help me escape. Yeah. And when I took that first hit, I just felt peace, which was something I hadn't had throughout my childhood. And then eventually I just chased that same feeling to where I was started to smoke every single day because I started to develop a habit. I started to sell a little bit on the side to make some extra cash so I could smoke for free or smoke at a discount because I couldn't afford to buy it. And then that created even more tension in my family unit because now I'm starting to act out more because I'm getting caught with pot. People are saying stuff to me and then I'm in complete denial or I've justified it in my head because I'm like, all right, the world is against me right now so I can essentially do what I want. And B, like everybody else is doing it that I'm hanging out with, so it's normal. And I think our environment sometimes create this false sense of normalcy to where if you're spending time with 10 people that are doing the same thing as you, even though it's bad behavior, you're going to think it's normal because the other side is also true to where if you're spending time with 10 people that 
are bettering themselves and they're compassionate and kind and that sort of thing, then you're going to think that's normal too. And anything different than that is going to be kind of weird. And as I started to progress in my addiction, I just would do whatever I could to act out and to get attention. One of the things that was really pivotal in my childhood was when I was, I was almost 16 years old and my mom went into the hospital to have a hysterectomy. And as kids, like the, one of the coolest things you could do in high school is to have a party when your parents aren't in town, right? When your parents are away for the weekend. I grew up in like the suburbs of Baltimore City. This sounds very much like suburban life, suburban, suburban life, yeah. because this is a different experience because what you're describing is it's just as someone who grew up in New York City, yes, there would we would have kids over when parents are away. But I, I also think that there's this there's something about suburbia and drugs, suburbia and drug addiction that happens as a result of this sort of systemic boredom that starts to happen with young kids. And I wonder so I, have, I obviously want to hear more of your story, but I have, I have a couple of questions because I think there might be people listening right now who have kids who are contemplating divorce and are maybe thinking that this is their worst nightmare, that if they divorce, then their kid is going to, you know, become depressed and drug addicted and go to jail. So are you saying that are you saying that a large part of what happened in your trajectory has to do with being a child of divorce? No, not necessarily. I mean, I think the reason I describe it that way is because I started to develop this like victim mindset growing up to where I thought that everything in the world was happening to me. And because of the stuff that I went through, I justified every behavior after that because of that one event, which I think happens a lot, right? It's not the breakup that destroys people's lives. It's like okay. what happens after that ends up leading to a path of destruction. But how did it impact your relationship with each parent? That's what I'm really interested to hear because, I mean, you're a child, right? So it's easy to kind of, you don't have the wisdom or the self-awareness to be able to say to yourself, oh, I'm thinking like a victim right now. Like that's just, it's literally impossible to have that kind of self-awareness as a child. Who were you closer to growing up, your mom or your dad? I was closer to my mom. My dad and I didn't really see eye to eye that much growing up. We had a tough relationship. And I think the hardest thing that I saw as a kid that like now that I've gotten through it and I can look back and I'm like, all right, what do parents need to hear? It was more that I would hear about each parent from the other parent, right? Which became kind of weird. No, that's the worst thing that people who are divorcing due to their kids. Right. You mean talking poorly about each other? I felt yeah. like we became like a prize where there was constantly like custody fights over stuff. They were fighting over child support. That's and actually very traumatizing. Yeah. And then I would just see that they weren't communicating other than like through like a phone or through email. And so I would see that and I would say, okay, like maybe this is what happens when you're mad at somebody. Like you just don't talk to them. Like I learned a lot of that. My coping skills, I guess, just from watching that. And I guess what I will say about the situation is parents can't control whether or not their kids are going to get addicted to drugs. There's certain things I think that they can do. And my biggest advice as somebody who grew up in a divorce home is just do what you can to make it about the kids and not about winning versus your partner or ex-partner. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I give the exact same advice. It's not about you two anymore. It's really about how you can best serve your children. I have another question for you, which is, so what were your father's expectations of you as a child, or at least what you perceived his expectations of you to be? I think higher than reality. Oh, no question. Like what, did he want you to be the American all-star in a sport? I, th I think part of him, and I don't know this for a fact, but had some unfulfilled dreams maybe in the athletic department and wanted that to play out in my life and would get frustrated with me when I wouldn't make a shot. Like I would hear him like yelling at me from the sidelines and it would just, it would tear me apart. And I, I haven't really told this story, but publicly on a podcast, I don't think, or very rarely, but there was a time when I was playing youth basketball to where he was coaching me and it, he would yell so much when I would miss something that 
I told him to stop coaching me. I was like, I don't want you to coach me anymore. Like it's making me not want to play. And then he ended up coaching another team in the same league, like the next year anyway. That just gives you an idea of how it was. Now, my dad and I are much better than we were back then, but a lot of that played into my identity of myself and thinking I wasn't good enough and not being comfortable opening up and sharing when I was struggling with stuff because I was like, all right, what am I going to, where's this conversation going to go? And this is what's so important. And this is certainly not to put parents down because I actually sort of cringe at all the content out there that is about you know, blaming parents for trauma. And it's, to me, my work is really about trying to rewrite that story and helping people to reconnect with parents. So I just want to put that disclaimer out first, but this is so important, which is when we have a parent with whom we are not as close, right? And that parent has expectations. Because one of the things that I tell parents to not do all the time is, and I tell this to people when it comes to romantic relationships, we all have a habit of projecting our ideal onto someone. So parents will project their ideal onto their child. And so here you are firstborn and he's wanting to coach. He wants you to have all this athletic ability. And instead whatever reason, you have a slower metabolism than the rest, whatever sports you were trying out as a child were not a good match for you and your athletic ability at the time. But it's this unconscious desire or need to please the parent whose love is a little bit more or a lot more scarce that becomes the driving force of our lives. Because to not get his approval back then as a child, it feels like death. And so here you are not being able to live up to the standard that you believe your father had of you. And he probably had no idea the pain that it would cause. And so is it fair then to say, I mean, I think we're saying the same thing, that this is the trauma that comes up. It's not necessarily the divorce, although that plays a role. It's I'm not as close to, in this case, dad, and I, I'm not good enough for him. Then we turn that inwards and we start to hate ourselves and not love ourselves and not feel good enough. And that's when, if we don't have enough support, and like you said, we have a certain environment, there's a lot of moving parts here. But what can happen is then someone not taking care of themselves and then getting involved with the wrong group of kids. And then next thing you know, it's drugs. And then next thing you know, it's weight problems. And then next thing you know, it's selling drugs so that you can support your habit. And it all comes from this completely heart-wrenching pain of believing that we are not good enough for a parent or both parents. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that at the end of the day, like I'm, I've never been married, so it's hard for me to really comment on this, but I'm not anti-divorce. I just think it's more like how you handle the situation. Like the old saying, it's two healthy households is better than one toxic household, right? And I just think that the reason it impacted me more, we think things are going to supposed to be a certain way right? We think that you're supposed to have these memories with your parents and you're going to go on vacation together and you're going to play sports and do all these things. And then when that got ripped away from me, I guess, in a way, and I started to notice it as I started to like understand what was going on. And I started to see that I was now different than a lot of other kids that I knew. You start to look at it and be like, why? And then that's like not the thing with the thing after that is like what you just talked about. It's more like the parental response to that situation. And there was just, it just seemed like there was so much chaos like growing up that I didn't know like how to respond or how to like understand it all and put it all together without internalizing it. And then getting to a place where I needed to escape before I just burst. And with the sports, like I, I wanted to play sports. Like I love sports. My dad wasn't like forcing me to like play a sport, even though I didn't want to. It was more that when I played it, 
it just seemed like he wanted me to be the best of the best. And while that was of course so any kid's drive, right, is to be the best at what they're doing, it just wasn't in the cards for me. So anytime I would miss a shot or I would mess up and I would get a reaction, it taught me that failure was bad. And we see this a lot in our society today where people think that failure is bad. And in reality, like you have to fail to grow. Like there's no other way around it. You have to fail. You have to get through a broken relationship to get through a health. It also doesn't define your inherent worthiness. It's a part of life. Yeah. Right. So yeah, all of that combined with the fact that I was bullied and picked on as a kid, that was like the that if any that was the hardest thing was just being picked on for no reason at school to where I wasn't a kid that like was starting stuff or that was mean or anything like that. I can, not that you justify that, but I can understand why somebody like that might get some pushback. I was just this nice kid who wanted to fit in and wanted the same thing all the other kids did. And then when I started getting bullied by not only like kids, like my peers, like boys, but also girls, I was like, wait a second, like what the heck? What am I doing wrong? Like, I don't understand. And that was like a mentality that I had just began to develop and internalize throughout my childhood. That's very painful. What led to your incarceration? So, you know, I mentioned I had that party and then that escalated a lot of things in my life. I had a party when my mom was in the hospital. Cops came, busted the party. That created like a massive amount of tension with me and my mom. Then a few weeks later on my 16th birthday, my mom busted me, weighing out a little bit of pot to sell to my neighbor. And then she did what she thought was the best I think she could do in that situation was she just kicked me out and made me go live with my dad full time. Like they thought that was the best answer. So in, within 24 hours on my 16th birthday, I'm changing my living situation to where I'm now living with my dad, who my mom knew about my dad and I's relationship. So I felt very betrayed, abandoned, all the things. Went to live with him, changed high schools within 24 hours. And then I think what they thought was that if they just pulled me out and put me in some new environment that it would force me to make better decisions. But re in reality, it just created more pain, more trauma, what's quote unquote wrong with me, all that stuff. And so I get to this new high school, develop new friends to where I was doing the same stuff, getting high, partying, that sort of thing. Barely graduated high school because all my friends and I did was ride around, smoke weed, skip class and stuff. And then I got out of high school after barely graduating and started to sell pot, not just to support my habit, but to make money. And then as I started to graduate in the drug game, I started to meet more people. I started to meet people who were doing harder drugs, got introduced to cocaine not too long after that. And for a kid who's not confident and has low self-esteem, cocaine was a great, yes, was a great for that. Yeah. But the problem is I also had like crippling anxiety to go along with those insecurities as well. And so cocaine and anxiety go about as well together as somebody trying to eat pizza and donuts and lose weight, but just doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily work too well. So that exacerbated my anxiety. And then finally, later on in my teenage years, I got introduced to Oxycontin and a friend of mine offered me a five milligram Percocet. I did it. And the same feeling that I felt when I first started smoking pot happened again with this Percocet. And I could finally like get high and do drugs without having anxiety or panic like I had before that because of just where my life was headed and because of the cocaine and everything. And I knew that I wasn't putting kale in my system when I started taking painkillers, but I didn't understand how fast I would get addictive. I mean, it was quick to where it's five milligrams a day, 10 milligrams a day, 20, all the way up until I'm doing three, 400 milligrams up my nose every single day. I've heard it's probably one of the most addictive things. I mean, that's why people will get into accidents or something and then like never have done a drug in their life. And then they start taking painkillers for something and game over. Yeah, it was, it was game over for me. And then I got sloppy in my drug dealing and other areas of my life even more so. And it got so bad that Eventually, half my left nostril was missing because of all the stuff I was putting up my nose and just I was completely a mess. And what ended up initially I thought was going to be what, like the greatest setback in my life ended up becoming my biggest blessing to where Cinco de Mayo 2008, actually I'm coming up here on 15 years in about a month. I was riding around with a few of my friends to make a drug deal, had a half a pound of pot in the trunk, a couple thousand dollars in the glove box. And I had- You're like 20 years old, right? 
I was 20 years old. Yeah, kid. And I had a busted headlight that I had been meaning to fix, but because of doing that would have taken away time for me to be able to sell and do drugs. It just wasn't in the cards at the time to, to change my headlight. There was a cop running radar. So I decided it would be a great idea to flash my high beams as a police officer to somehow think that he would not see the fact that I had a busted headlight. But in reality, it gave him a reason to pull me over because I just flashed my high beams at a cop, right? So sire, I see the sirens come on, pulls up behind me. My heart like sinks into the pit of my stomach. I'm shaking. I feel like at that moment, my life is over because I just knew where this was headed. Cop comes up to my window. I stammer to get my license and registration out to give to him. And one thing leads to the next. He searches the car, finds everything, finds the pot, finds the money, finds the scale, ends up putting me in handcuffs. And I remember just sitting in the back of the cop car. And this was a very pivotal moment for me now, like having the self-awareness I do to look back. And I'm sitting in the back of this cop car. And I don't know if anybody who's listening to this or Jillian, if you've had any like similar experience where you feel like everything just comes to a head. Everything's like flashing before me. I'm seeing like the divorce. I'm seeing kids picking on me. I'm seeing my choices and my role in all of this. I'm like, how did I get here? Like, how did the kid who just wanted to be loved, like how did the kid who just wanted girls to like him, how did the kid who just wanted to be good at sports, like how is this nice kid in the back of a cop car now facing felony drug charges? And the reality is it's because of my choices. Like as hard as my childhood may have seemed and the unfairness that happened, I chose to respond in the way that I did. Like I made certain choices to in the best to the best of my ability in that situation. And I end up getting taken to jail, charged with possession with the intent to distribute marijuana, which is a felony. My dad bailed me out the next day. And then I had to figure out like what I was gonna do as far as like a lawyer and stuff, because I mean, people were telling me I was likely gonna go to jail because it was a felony and Back in 2008, like pot was pretty bad still, like, you know, in the judicial system, it's not like today where it's illegal in a lot of places and ended up going to court in September 30th of 2008. And I'm still 20 years old at the time. And the judge in my mind, like threw the book at me because he sentenced me to five years, convicted me of the felony, suspended everything but 90 days for my jail sentence, meaning that I had to do the 90 day sentence. But if I messed up, if I violated probation, failed a drug test or anything like that, I could have potentially gone back and served the full five years. Gave me five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But he looked at me, he's like, Doug, you're young, you're 20 years old. This felony conviction is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. He's like, I'm going to make you a deal. I'm like, deal? I'm like, I'm going to jail. Like, what's the deal? Am I not going to go to jail or something? And he's like, if you complete everything without messing up, no failed drug tests. You do your probation. You do everything without messing up at all. I'll take the felony conviction off of your record at the end of the five years and give you probation before judgment, which is kind of like a, it's kind of like a pass, right? Instead of the felony conviction that I had originally had. And you know, I'm 20 years old. I had been to several people who I spent time with funeral before that time for drug and alcohol related deaths. Every opportunity I had to succeed in my life, I didn't. I, I was destined in my mind to be a failure. So I had no self-confidence in my ability to do anything he asked me to do, but I just had no other choice but to take the deal. And I reported to the jail a few weeks later, a week after my 21st birthday. And when I walked into the detention center, I had obviously had all kinds of fears, insecurities, emotions about what was going to happen. I had a lot of like stuff just pent up about my life up until that point, obviously. And I cried the day I walked in because I didn't want to go. And I cried the day I left jail because I didn't want to leave. And here's what happened. So I get to jail. And the first thing I had to do was detox cold turkey off Oxycontin. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, did you have to do cold turkey? That yeah, must cool. have been hell. It was hell. I mean, it was like having the worst case of the flu possible, all the symptoms for like two to three weeks uncontrollable bowel movements, vomiting, shaking, pain, anxiety. Was there anyone overseeing this or making sure, like taking your pulse and making sure your blood pressure, like was there any sort of medical supervision during this time? Yeah, we, there was medical in there and there was like a nurse, I think that would come in every day, but because you technically can't die from opiate detox, there's not really a lot they could do. I think they gave me some stuff for like nausea, which I mean, it would help, but it wouldn't help. 
because I was just taking so much and doing so much. And I was also coming off, I was smoking a pack to a pack and a half of cigarettes before I went in there. I couldn't smoke cigarettes, I was smoking weed. I was doing all this other stuff that I think just compounded into my body that made that withdrawal just incredibly painful. Plus I had, you know, insane amounts of anxiety and depression and mental health issues to go along with all of that. But I think the worst symptom, which was the most transformative for me looking back, was this feeling of trying to crawl out of your own skin. I don't know if anybody who's listening to this has had like crazy anxiety has ever felt this or if you detox and you understand, but it felt like my body was trying to leave me. It was so weird and I don't know how to explain it. But as I look Mm -hmm. back now, I felt like honestly it was the old me like leaving so that the new me could become whole. And my soon-to-be cellmate who ended up saving my life was sitting there playing Scrabble and he looked at me and he could just tell that I was soft-spoken. I walked with my head down. I looked like a a zombie walking in there. He could just tell that there was something that needed to change inside of me. And he was like, you're going to start working out with me when you get through your detox. And this guy looked like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club. And I was just like, looking at him like, dude, there's no way I'm going to, I'm going to work out. Could you seen me? I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. Like that's like how I saw myself because I was really, I was like 40% body fat or something like that. And he looked at me, he's like, all right, man, whatever. And so I let, not too long after that, I see him work out and I see him doing like thousands of push-ups and pull-ups and running all over the jail. And I was like, dude, who is this guy? This guy's insane. And then we had a conversation not too long after that in the jail cell that changed my life. And it's going to kind of bring full circle the what we talked about before as far as the divorce in that he was asking me questions about my story. He's like, you know, why are you here? What happened? Blah, blah, blah. And I started blaming my parents for the divorce. I said, you know, my parents got divorced and girls rejected me and kids picked on me and I didn't make the sports teams. And he looks at me and I guess the PG version, he's like, quit being a victim. And I just was shocked to hear what he, him say that because I wanted to be coddled and be like, it's okay, Dougie, like the world's against you. It's okay. You should have done that. But he was like, you're blaming everybody for your problems, but yourself. He was like, you chose to respond to your situation in the way that you did. He's like, there's plenty of people that went through what you went through that aren't in jail, right, Doug? And I'm like, yep. He's like, you got two choices. You can be a man, look yourself in the mirror and say, you got yourself here and it's up to you to change. No one's coming to save you. No one's coming to rescue you because I wanted someone to rescue me. I wanted girls to help validate me and my self-esteem. I wanted validation from my family. I wanted validation from friends. I wanted different forms of attention in other ways. I wanted drugs, like all these things to save me. But I knew that the only thing in that moment that was going to save me was myself. So he's like, here's one option. The other option is you go and be a victim, go cry in the corner, say, well, it was me and blame everybody else for your problems. He's like, most people will do that. And for the first time, like really in my life, I felt empowered. I was like, all right, well, clearly I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in jail. I'm a drug addict. I've had 21 jobs, damaged relationships. I have no self-esteem, no self-confidence. I'm going to give this exercise thing a try. And I remember getting down to do a push-up in front of a bunch of grown men, couldn't do a push-up, could barely do one from my knees. I mean, if anything at all, and could barely also walk up and down the steps because I was so out of shape cardiovascularly. And with my cellmate's motivation and encouragement, training me in there every single day during my 90-day sentence, I was able to do a set of 10 push-ups and run a mile by the end of my sentence, which felt like today, that would be like today, me climbing Mount Everest compared to like how low I felt about myself, how physically out of shape I was back then. And for the first time, I felt like I was finally ready to change and to transform because I had a new level of swagger. I started to walk with my shoulders back and head up. I started to, like, and I get emotional talking about this because it's like, I knew like before, like I just wanted something different for myself. I knew that I was made to do something different with my life and I just lacked the confidence to figure it out. And I just finally had this ability to be proud of myself and to understand that everything's going to be okay. No one was going to love myself if I didn't love myself. And I learned that when I was in in jail and I I got comfortable being uncomfortable, which was really hard for me for the longest time. Like I would, whenever I was uncomfortable or I would experience discomfort, I would just do a drug or I would go to the strip club or I would do something to check myself out and escape. But in jail, I wasn't allowed to escape. There was no more hiding from exercise. What a metaphor, by the way. You're literally in prison, but you're also 
it's like you become a prisoner of your own mind and you either can go crazy or you can free yourself. I have to ask, this man who came into your life as some force of something, you call it God, call it grace, call it luck, I don't, whatever one believes in, but definitely a moment of, in my view, grace. Where is he now? The day I left jail, I asked him, I said, how can I ever repay you? And he was like, don't mess it up and pay it forward. And he gave me a workout routine that I still have framed in my place today. So I never forget where I came from. Got out. We stayed in touch for a while through like letters. And then we ended up eventually meeting up. He was out of jail? He was. He passed away like a year ago, but we ended up meeting up and doing some workouts together. And one of the most meaningful things about doing stuff like this, like sharing my story is that after he died, a member of his family reached out to me because they were like going through and they had known who I was. So I think he obviously talked about me and they saw we were connected through Facebook and then they would look at some of the stuff that I had shared and they would see like my podcast interviews and they would listen and they would hear me tell the story of how this guy changed my life. And it created this thing for them where they could now like remember like the good side of him that they had known, you know, and I got invited to go speak at his funeral and share the story. And I never expected how it would all come full circle. I mean, I dedicated my first book I wrote to him because I just was so touched by the fact that he really chose to help save my life before even saving his own. And it was cool that throughout my journey, you know, when we were in touch, he would message me and be like, you know, you're my inspiration now. And I'm like proud of you. And it's just, it's crazy. And it's, it's one question that I always will ask and being like, why didn't he save himself? And why did he pick me? Like out of all the people, you know, why was I this person that he just saw that he could help transform him? Obviously I'm super thankful that he did, but it's just, it's an insane story. And I'm just thankful to be alive. So just remind me again, you served for how long? It was a 90 day sentence. So with like good behavior and I did like 70 something days, I think. So you are out, you have this experience, you're on a new trajectory of taking care of yourself. Clearly, it gave you a sense of purpose and mission, it sounds like. I want to hear about that, but I'm also probably first really curious about how your journey has been since that time to now forming relationships. And what I mean by that is friendships with men, romantic relationships with women. I mean, you went into jail not really belonging anywhere and you found your, I guess, your crew through drugs and alcohol. That was how you learned to belong or how you figured out how to belong. And then you formed this friendship in jail, but you didn't have a lot of experience in friendship and in romantic relationship. That must be just a journey in and of itself, learning relationship skills. Yeah, so true. And I definitely struggled with both mainly the romantic side, but I'll get into that in a second. Firstly, the friendship side, you know, I got out of jail and I wanted to almost prove people wrong that I had changed. And I was now like this cool person with self-esteem and I could like hang around the crew and not be made fun of like I was during my childhood. And obviously I abstained from doing the drugs I was abusing, but it got to a point as, I mean, cause when I got out of jail, I lived with my grandparents who also are up there with my cellmate and being transformative in my life because they gave me an opportunity to live in their place rent-free with, given the fact that I also had to abide by their rules and stay on a straightened path and that sort of thing. But when I was with my friends and I continued on this healthy path that I had started when I was in jail after jail, it was almost like being on an awkward first date when I would be around my old friends to where I would look at them and they'd be wanting to like go out and get high. And I'd be looking to like read a magazine about how to build my biceps bigger to where (laughs) we didn't have a lot in common like we used to. And I say a lot on social media, and this has been pretty popular that I say like, surround yourself with people who have common futures and not common past. And this is something that I had to develop for myself and this mentality through this process because I felt so like loyal to some of these people that I had spent time with for years and who would let me, you know, at times sleep on their couch or on their floor or whatever, who also like acted in a way as like family that where I felt bad leaving them. And I think a lot of people do where they're like, I've known this person for 20 years or 15 years and blah, blah, blah. And I had to get, yeah, a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And I had to get to a place where I was like, you know what, like, 
I'm moving forward and I want people in my life that are on the path with me. And I don't want to feel awkward and feel like I'm forcing myself to be around people just to be around people. Because I think you feel way more alone, like spending time with the wrong people than you ever will, like spending time by yourself, like intentionally. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because it's very difficult. I think it's very difficult when people feel like they outgrow a relationship, whether that's a platonic one or a romantic one. And it's hard because there is a lot of guilt with that. But not only is it lonely, but it's basically it's holding you back. And I love that. I haven't heard that. I didn't know that you wrote that. But this idea of find people who you have common futures with, not just common past with. And I think one of the hardest things for people who overcome drug addiction and just kind of shady living once they do kind of get their lives back on track or on track, maybe for the first time, you have to break up with certain people. It's a matter of survival, actually. We are who we hang out with. It would actually be really easy, easier than people think that if you were just to kind of stay hanging out with the people getting high, there's a very, this is a fact, there's a high probability that you could have gone back to the way things were. Because we will unconsciously adapt to our peer group because we want to belong. Yeah. So we will often dumb ourselves down or dim our light. You know, we will go down to get to people's levels so that we can connect with them. And that's actually more what happens than other people being like, let me rise up to connect to that person who's at a higher level. And I think that it's really important. And I think it just proves that we are so driven by the need to connect and the need to belong. And so it takes a lot of courage to step away from people who you could connect with and belong with. It takes a lot of courage to step away from that. But it's very necessary if by staying in that group is going to hold you back. Yeah. It does become a matter of survival. It does. Like I said, like I haven't touched the drugs I was abusing and God, it's going to be almost, it's like 14 and a half years since the day I went to jail. And when I was hanging out with my old friends, I can see how easily it could have been to go back into these old patterns and fall into these old behaviors because it was still around me. And that was like one of the things that was instrumental in me leaving where I was like, even though like these aren't bad people, I don't want to take a chance and end up like doing something, you know, stupid just because I feel like comfortable with certain people. And what it really took was me spending time with my grandparents at their house. And we would watch like Dancing with the Stars. I'd watch like the Food Network and I would, and that helped inspire me to learn how to cook. And I love the Food Network. Yeah. It got me being comfortable being alone and understanding like who I wanted to be as a person, where I wanted to go, what types of people I wanted in my life. And then I started to, as I moved forward on my journey, I started to attract certain people in my life that were on the path. And I started to develop trust like with like men, like, you know, certain friendships in my life that I didn't really have before because of stuff, you know, we talked about my dad. I was bullied a lot, like I said, by kids that were friends of mine. So there was some level of distrust there. And so it really took me like leaning into my own level of trust for myself and knowing that I was making the right decision and that I had to be able to open myself up and you know, just be able to take a chance at formulating these, these friendships. And that just over time has grown to me developing like a good solid core group of men in my life that have been friends of mine for years. And a lot of it is, was self-taught. A lot of it was just reading, but also like my cellmate in jail, like it taught me that I didn't have everything figured out. Like it taught me the importance of a mentor and having somebody kind of check me when I wasn't doing my best. And so I tend to surround myself with people that check me. Like I've had friends through the years that have, when it would have been easy to pat me on the back and tell me it's okay to be behaving the way I am, they've checked me and been like, dude, like you can't be doing that. Good. They called you accountable. We're transitioning now to women and romantic relationships. Are you in a relationship? I am not now, no. Okay. Have you been in a healthy relationship? Is this like the place where you're still struggling? Tell me a little bit about this. This is actually, this is the hard one. Yeah. I mean, 
I guess if I'm being honest, I would say, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely an area that I struggle with in the sense where I'm still like trying to find like the right partner. I mean, I've been in a long-term relationship that wasn't exactly the healthiest relationship. I've definitely dated people over the years to where it looks good on paper, but it's not necessarily a good fit. Obviously I have a role in that too. And my main role, as I look back, it's like for the first five years out of jail, I was on probation. I was working really hard to rebuild my life and to rebuild my self-esteem and everything. And I was fortunate enough to do that. But I also thought that when I was a kid, I say this a lot because it was so true for me. If a genie came and said, Doug, you got three wishes and I'm going to take all your pain away, what would they be? And you got to stop doing drugs. I'd be great. I want a pretty girlfriend. I want big biceps, a six pack, and I want to make like good money, you know? And I did that in my twenties. Like I would get attention from girls. I was very good shape, made good money. And I still was so miserable. And I was even more miserable because I felt like I was like lied to, to where I thought that I, if I got to this peak of the mountain, that I would be happy. And it just wasn't the case. So I would just go after pretty girls. And as soon as they would give me attention, I'd be like, well, that's it next. Right. Because you just, it was like, it was the validation. It was the validation that I had never really gotten as a kid. And it was almost like I was trying to like relive my childhood. I was trying to go back Mm -hmm. in time and like fix it, which I think happens a lot with people who have experienced some level of trauma. Yeah. But it's also because you felt so insignificant growing up. And so now you're getting this female attention and it validates you that you can get, but you don't have the skills yet for true intimacy. Yeah. Or, and I didn't really have a healthy, as healthy of a self image as I thought I did because I still saw myself as the old Doug in the mirror. Yeah. Because of what I went through and because, you know, throughout the years where my brain was developing and growing and I was like formulating an identity of who I was as a person, I still saw like the overweight Doug, the drug addict Doug, the heavy set Doug, the kid who was bullied when I looked at myself in the mirror. And that impacted my self-confidence to go up and talk to a girl like in public. It's embarrassing, but I was mortified to talk to a girl in public, like throughout my early and mid twenties. It's sad as I look back because- It's not sad. I mean, it's just, is what it is, but I want to help you. I want to take this opportunity. I want you to take the opportunity and I want to help you. So what's going on? What's holding you back now? Why aren't you in a relationship from your perspective? I guess I just haven't really found- Because you want to be in a relationship from what I understand. Yes. And I feel like I've done the work. I have a great level of self-confidence and self-esteem to the best of my ability. I have purpose. I'm of catch, I think. But it's like I go on dating apps and I just won't really match with anybody. Or I'll start talking to somebody and then they'll like ghost me or something. Why are you on dating apps? I mean, you know a lot of people. You know a lot of people doing impressive stuff. Why are you on dating apps? You should be just meeting women through your podcast, through your friends, through community. I would say that this is my advice. I'll bill you after. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Get off the dating app. Like you have a circle and you know a lot of people. I wouldn't be trying to match with random people with no accountability off of a dating app. Because your story is like, yeah, it's a dating app. I'm not matching or I get ghosted. What do you really think? Like one of the things that's so charming and endearing about you, Doug, is that you're so open and honest about who you are and you have that level of confidence. So I'll ask you the question again, like, what do you think is really holding you back? Maybe it's just direction. I think, I I mean, because I know part of me is like, do I move out of where I've been and grown up my entire life and move into a place where I can walk and meet people more organically and there's more to do as far as like networking in the personal development space? Because a lot of the meaning it's the women that I have talked to don't live here. So it's like, I'll talk to somebody who lives in California. Well, that's real convenient. Or I'll talk to somebody who lives in like Florida or you know what I mean? And it's like, well, where's that going to go? Like maybe you meet up one night and you hook up and that's it. It's like, well, you're close to New York. Yeah, I'm close to New York, but I always think go back to like, I wouldn't live in New York City. So I'm I automatically like. No, but don't go there yet because you just uh, never know. At least it's not a plane ride away. That's don't true. limit yourself with that. You know, you just, you never know. So it's like, where do I go from here? Because I've identified like what I want in a woman. I know what I want in a relationship. I don't need to read any more books or listen to any more podcast. I mean, no. I, I need to just do it, do the thing. And I guess I just lack direction in that area. Are you still really afraid of being rejected? No, not at all. I mean, I get rejected all the time. I mean, okay, great. But in a fair, 
I mean, it's not yeah. great that you're rejected all the time. It's great that you're not afraid of rejection. <laughs> I'm not afraid at all. I mean, I honestly, like, I have no issue, like, talking to people or walking up. And I went to an event in New York last week where it was, like, I mean, 99% women for to support a friend of mine who was on the podcast. Great. And, and so did you meet any women? This is, like, my luck. This is what I mean. So this is a, a perfect example, right? So... I end up like meeting this girl. We end up like kind of talking and I hopefully she's not listening to this, but if she is, it would be kind of funny. We're like talking and we really hit it off like before the event starts because there was like a meet and greet and stuff before and me and the one of the girls are just sitting there talking. And then she's like, well, where are you sitting? I'm like, I'm sitting in this seat. She's like, oh my God, I'm sitting right next to you. So then we sat next to each other. We talked and I just was leaving New York like that next night. And I just said, hey, like, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? And she was like, oh, I'm working. I was like, hey, do you want to grab some food before I leave? My train leaves at like 8.15 or something like that. And she says, yeah, I think I could do that. And I was like, all right, great. I said, let's meet like at such and such time. And I said, I'll text you in the morning and I'll like, I'll pick a spot or something, right? So I text her in the morning, pick a spot. She ends up like texting me, I think like later on in the day and being like, hey, I'm so sorry. I forgot I had plans, but I can meet you at like X time. I'm like, great. So I'm like, all right, cool, whatever. I'll meet you there. So then it was like an hour before. She's like, hey, like this call that I had ran over. So it doesn't look like I'll be able to meet you tonight. And so then that's like kind of what's, it's a pattern of what's happened recently with me where that kind of stuff will happen where I feel like I'm doing the right thing and then something happens. Yeah. Okay. So that, that does happen, right? Forget about her. Right. Don't keep pursuing that one. Oh, obviously. Yeah. I mean, so. Good. Okay. So some things are just maybe not happening. Maybe you're noticing that you're feeling a little bit of a spark and maybe they're not or whatever it is. But I I think that, you know, you said you have a good community of guys. You have a good community of people. Have one of your friends like set up a dinner and then it's just, it's a dinner and it's just a few people. It's really intimate and you get to meet someone. You just have to be resourceful. No, I will. I mean, that's a good idea. Because you're at an age, I would imagine you know a lot of people who know women who are single. Yes. You're probably looking for like the 30 to 35 year old, I would imagine, ish. Yeah. Like I would say, like, yeah, 30 to. Yeah. So that's like the age where every woman wants to get married. Right. So I think that you know what you want. You're not afraid of rejection. Yeah. It's just more like it's just the volume, right? Don't like, go for the prettiest girl in the river. Maybe that's something I still need to work on. Like that's something that maybe I try and go and I'm trying to like connect the dots in my past, right? To work. Yeah, it's like you're trying to find the girl that every guy, you know, would want or something like that rather than someone who really who you find lovely and beautiful but, you know, you're really captivated by something beyond than what she looks like. So I think that you need to maybe not go for the hottest girl in the room and go for the woman who's attractive and also is extremely interesting and interested in you. Right. And what you have to say. I heard something the other day. I forget what exactly how it went, though, that it was like the top 80% of women are competing for like the top 20% of men. <laughs> and the bottom 80% of men are competing for the bottom 20% of women or something like that. I mean, that's very possible. All I know is that you gave me a clue and the clue was like when you were younger, right? right. Wanting to have this valid because none of the girls, you got even bullied by some girls and the pretty girls didn't want you. And you had a blueprint, which is I got to have the pretty girls, you know, I've got to have a beautiful girl on my arm. I have to have money and I have to have biceps. These three things, right? So that kind of stays with you. And so I'm wondering if you're still looking for the not consciously, but like the girl who is going to validate you in some way versus the girl who is beautiful in her own right, but she's not the quote unquote conventionally hottest girl in the room where you're trying to see like, can I use my charm and, you know, my big biceps to get this girl? I don't know. I know you're not doing that consciously, but you did give me a clue. And I just wonder if you're trying to connect with if that's a little bit of what's running the show. Anyway, we could talk about this another time a little bit more, but I would say don't go for that. Go for something else. 
with a woman who you can actually really, really, really connect with and who you're attracted to, of course. But you got to make sure that old programming isn't running the show in those moments. And you're trying to get like the prettiest cheerleader in the room to like you. I don't really think it's not necessarily that. It's more like I'm attracted, obviously, to girls that look a certain way, but also I can also have a deep conversation with them where I can, you know, they have a sense of humor. Right. Yeah. But that girl who just recently blew you off for whatever reason, you know, and that could have nothing to do with you or could, it doesn't matter. I mean, we win some, we lose some, but I always am giving so much props to guys because it takes a lot of courage to ask a woman out. Like it takes a lot of courage. And I will tell you this, a lot of women, even if they are initially attracted to you, they will be attracted to your courage in just asking her out and she will be more likely to give you a chance. This is very true. But whatever happened with that girl, you didn't know if you had a deep conversation with her. That's why I'm suggesting you speak to your friends, tell them to invite a few people over so that there's a more intimate setting that's within community where you could actually really connect with someone without it being a quote-unquote date. You hear me? For sure. You think you can do that? I do. I do, I do though. I do think that on my mind is eventually like leaving Baltimore and going to a place like Austin or Nashville or something where there's a, there's just more community there. And it's like, I'm in suburbia, right? So like. No, I get that. You never know. Well, maybe on your travels or anything like that. Yeah. It sounds to me like you sound like you feel like a little bit isolated. And that a lot of your community is not really right there, but through phone calls and Zooms and that kind of connection and texts. I do have some solid male friends here and community Mm -hmm. here, but a lot of them are now married with kids. So it's like, weekends. they're not having set it up, set it up for your travels, go travel somewhere, set up a podcast. You'll meet someone. I mean, you sound like you're open to not staying where you are. I'm definitely open to traveling and meeting somebody. Okay. And then potentially moving because of somebody. Yes. Okay. So. So ladies, you can slide into my DMs. I'm yes. Seriously. Folks. Come on. This is like a catch. Come on, <laughs> girls. 28 to 35. Here we are. Slide into his DMs. Get a conversation going. You've heard his story. He's got purpose. He's got mission. And he's kind. It's like, that's the jackpot. I appreciate you saying that. It's taken a lot of work because I think part of my biggest limiting belief was I still saw like this old me, you know, as a, in my 20s where I would get compliments about my physique or about me looking like Mark Wahlberg. And I... Oh, you kind of do look like Mark Wahlberg. There you go. Right. And, and, I, and, I, and the reason I say that is, is because I wasn't in a place to where I was able to actually internalize that stuff in a healthy way where I would just be like, well, is that an... In-? Like at first I didn't really know if somebody saying that I looked like him was an insult or not, because I was so used to being called insulting names when I was a kid. Mm. And then when I would get validation for the way I looked from people, because it was like a high for me, I wasn't able to like actually absorb it in a way that was healthy. Like I was on to the next thing or it was because I didn't believe it for myself. I didn't believe I was a value or that I had, I looked a certain way or acted a certain way. Like none of that really mattered until therapy. So where my therapist, like really made me look deep into these beliefs that I had developed as a kid about myself. And to learn, I learned about like homeostasis and that because my body was used to creating chaos as a kid, I would create my own chaos in my relationships and in my life, even when there was no fire to be put out. I was still trying to figure out a way to put out a fire or create a fire, right? And doing all that work and getting honest with myself about a lot of these trials and tribulations was what led me to being comfortable not just jumping into a relationship or just dating for the sake of dating. I don't date for the sake of dating. If I'm not attracted to somebody or I'm not like interested, I'm not going to waste my time. Yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. But again, I will leave you with this. It's just food for thought. Think about it. And then you can text me later and let me know if this really resonated with you or not. Don't make it about, can I get the prettiest girl in the room? I won't. Like I mean, you want to like really, truly, like you want your soul to connect with someone. I appreciate that. And I, and I want that. And I, I think that's something that, again, it's just more direction and volume because on a dating app, it's like, 
There's so many. Get off the dating app, set up some things where you can meet people in person, more intimate, even if you have to fly or do anything like that, or take yourself to lunch, sit alone. If you see a girl sitting alone, you can maybe start talking to her because you have so much courage and you're not afraid of rejection. Try to do it the old fashioned way. The apps can be something that people can use in addition. But if what I'm seeing is that people are relying on this technology that is so new and it's a mistake and it's a mistake. And I think it's much better to meet someone who knows someone inside of your community. Uh, That's just I really think it's it's at the end of the day, that's a better one. But regardless, time is limited and I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to know. You just wrote a book? I've written three books. So so tell the audience about your three books real quick so that people can get them and be inspired. Right. So ladies, you will love to know that the felony conviction did come off my record. Like I said, <laughs> I haven't touched the drugs that I was doing or abusing in 14 and a half years. And the felony ended up coming off my record at the end of the five years of probation after I became a personal trainer and built a really successful training business. The judge took the conviction off my record and gave me the probation before judgment. And that inspired me to write my first book, From Felony to Fitness to Free, to give people hope and to inspire them to make the most of their second chance. My second book is called Faith Family Fitness, which I wrote around the time of what we were just talking about to where I hit this point in my life where I thought that external validation from women, from achievements, from the way I looked would grant me all this happiness. And I realized it, it didn't. And I needed some sense of spirituality in my life to help me get connected to something greater than myself. And so I ended up becoming a Christian. Again, I'm not dogmatic about it. I'm not quote unquote religious, but it's just what works for me. And I don't judge anybody for how they pursue that. I honestly embrace, you know, multiple forms of spirituality. But with that said, I wrote this book to write like the 15 lessons that I had learned, the biggest lessons I had learned in my life up until that point in my life and encourage people to embrace spirituality, obviously in a way that works for you. And then the third book I wrote, It's called The Heart of Recovery, which got published in 2019 because still in this horrific drug epidemic where I think last year or the year before, something like 100,000 people died of a drug overdose, which is kind of insane. So I interviewed 50 of the most inspiring people from all walks of life about how they've gotten to and stayed in recovery, different paths, different walks of life, different modes of recovery. But the common themes were They spent time with people that brought the best out in them. They had an immense amount of self-awareness. They took care of their health in a way that worked for them. They got spiritual in a way that worked for them. And they had this make or break moment where they decided to change. So those three books, and then, you know, now it's the Adversity Advantage podcast, which I've been hosting now for a little over three years, which I really like doing. And Which is an amazing podcast. Listeners, if you've not checked it out, be sure you have. He's had amazing guests and he's a wonderful interviewer. Thank you. That means a lot. So are you. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I talked about stuff I really don't get to talk about a lot, which was why I was excited to come on here because, you know, I think that the addiction side of my story is certainly relatable to a lot of people. But I think the the relationship stuff is is relatable too, because I think people have this idea that once you get on the path of self-help and personal growth, that all of a sudden life's going to be perfect and you're going to have everything figured out in your life. It's just so far from the case. I mean, I think the difference is like how you respond and how you go about certain things changes to where now I embrace like learning from people like you were before I wouldn't have wanted to like open myself up and ask how I can be better in relationships or how I could be better at pursuing women or whatever the uh, example is. So I just encourage people to know that like sometimes you just got to get off of the the self-help thing and stop reading the books and just go do the thing. That's something that I see a lot where people are looking for like the next relationship book to read only to allow them to escape from the work they need to do. And the work they need to do is to go out there and do the thing. Like I just heard from Jillian about me just going out and arranging these dinners or going and traveling and meeting people with the podcast and stuff. Like I just, I invite people to to kind of listen to that. Well, it's wonderful. So where can people find you, Doug? So the best place is my website is dougbopes.com. You can listen to the Adversity Advantage wherever you get your podcasts. I'm on Instagram, probably most active there at Doug Bopes. I'm on TikTok at Doug Bopes. I'm on YouTube as well. So yeah, I appreciate the uh, interview, Jillian. And then ladies, slide into my DMs. (laughs) (laughs) There you have it, everyone. There you have it. Thanks, Doug. I so appreciate you and your journey and being so open here. Likewise. Thanks again.
Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. Please, if you found this episode inspiring and you really feel like someone else would find it inspiring, please share it because you just never know whose life you could be changing in that moment. And if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at hello at jillianonlove.com. I love to hear your comments. I love to hear your questions. And until next time, thank you for listening. Jillian on Love is a Q Code production, executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson, produced by Ryan Countshouse, edited in music by Will Tendy. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts.